to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back. My name is Nicholas Lane. This time we'll be diving into what it's all about, cloud native applications. Joining me this week are Brian Lyles. Hi. Carlicia Campos. Hi everybody, glad to be here. And Josh Rosso. Hey everyone. So how's it going everyone? It's been a great week so far. I'm just happy that I have a good job and able to do things that make me feel whole. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, I've been having a good week as well. Been doing a bit of some fun stuff after work, like my uh, soon-to-be in-laws are in town, so I've been visiting with them, and that's been really fun. So cloud-native applications, what does that mean to y'all? Because I think that's an interesting topic. Definitely not a monolith. I think if you have a monolith running on the clouds, even if you started out that way, I wouldn't say it's a cloud-native app. I always think of containerized applications, and if you're using the container system, then it's usually because you want to have smaller systems and more of them. That's the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And also when I think of cloud-native applications, I think that they were developed, the whole strategy of the development and the whole strategy of the deploying and shipping has been designed from scratch to be done on the clouds, on the cloud system. I think of it as applications that were designed to run in container. And I also think about things like services, like microservices or macroservices. I don't really know what you want to call them, that we have multiple applications that are made to talk not just with themselves, but with other apps. And they deliver uh, bigger functionality through their coordination. And then when I also want to think of cloud-native apps, I think of apps that we are moving to the cloud. That's a big topic in itself, but applications that we run in the cloud. So all of our new fancy services and our SaaS offerings, a lot of these are cloud-native apps. But then on the other side, I think about applications that, made in, that are cloud-native are tolerant to failure. And on the other side, can actually talk about themselves, about their health and who they're talking to. Gets very complicated. Yeah, that's it is. Yeah, that was a side of that I haven't thought about. The big attributes for me that always come to mind are obviously portability, right? So wherever you're running this application, it can run somewhat consistently, be it on different clouds or even a lot of people, you know, are running their own cloud, which is basically their on-prem cloud, right? And that application being able to move across any of those places. And oftentimes containerization is one of the mechanisms we use to do that, right? Which is what we all had stated. Then I guess the other thing too is like this whole cloud ecosystem, be it a cloud provider or your own personal cloud, are oftentimes very API driven, right? So the applications you know, maybe being able to take advantage of some of those APIs should they need to, be it for scaling purposes and otherwise. So it's, it's a really interesting model. It's interesting for me, like this question, because so far everyone has given like similar but also different answers. And for me, I'm going to give a slightly different answer. To me, a cloud native application is a lot of the things we said, like portable. I think of microservices when I think of a cloud native application, but it's also an application that can modify the infrastructure it needs via API calls, right? So 
if your application needs a service or needs a networking connection, it can the application itself can manifest that via cloud offering, right? That's what I always thought of as a cloud native application. Like so if you need like a database, the application can reach out to like AWS RDS and spin up a database. And that was an aspect that uh, I always found very fascinating with cloud native applications. It isn't necessarily the definition, but for me, that's a part that I was really focused on. I think it's quite interesting. Also, CI and CD, cloud native apps are made to work well with our CI, our continuous integration, and our continuous delivery slash deployment systems as well. So that's like another very important aspect of cloud native applications. We should be able to deploy them to production without typing anything in. It should be some kind of automated process. Yeah, that is for sure. So, Felicia, you mentioned something that I think is good for us to talk about a little bit, which is terminology. I <laughs> keep coming back to that. So, you mentioned monolithic apps. What are monoliths then? I am so hung up on what you just said. Can we table that for a few minutes? So you said uh, a cloud-native application for you is an application that can interact with the infrastructure and maybe, for example, spin up a database. I wonder if you have an example or if you could expand on that. I wonder if um, if everybody agrees with that. I'm not clear on what that even is because as a developer, which is always my point mm -hmm. of view is what I know, it's a lot of responsibility Um, for the application to have. And, uh, for example, when we think cloud-native and I'm thinking now maybe I'm going off on a tangent here, but we have Kubernetes. Isn't that what Kubernetes is supposed to do, to glue it all together? So the application only needs to know what it needs to do, but like spinning up an outside system is not one of the things I would need to do. Sure. Actually, I was going to use Kubernetes as my example for a cloud-native application because Kubernetes itself is an app, right? And it can modify the cloud that it's running in, right? So if you have Kubernetes running in AWS, you can create ELBs, elastic load balancers. You can create new nodes. It can create new databases if you need, as, as I mentioned. So Kubernetes itself is my example of like a cloud-native application. And I should say that that's a good call-out. My example of what a cloud-native application is isn't necessarily like that's a rule. Like all cloud-native applications have to modify the cloud in which they exist in. It's more that they can modify the, like that is a component of a cloud-native application. So Kubernetes being an example there. I don't know, I guess things like operators inside of Kubernetes, so like the Rook operator will create storage for you. When you spin up like Rook to create a Ceph cluster, it'll also spin up like the ELBs behind it, or at least I believe it does. Or yeah, because operators do that kind of functionality as well. I can see what you're saying because, for example, if I choose to use their storage inside something like Kubernetes, then it will be required of my app to call an SDK and connect to that data storage somehow. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, I guess you are using your app. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how the connection is created, right? Like, so you just request, but you're not necessarily saying, I want this thing in specific. You just say, I want this sort of thing, like, which is their storage. And then you define that elsewhere. So your application doesn't need to know details, but it definitely needs to say, I need this. And I'm talking about, again, like yeah. when your data storage is in, it's running on top of Kubernetes and not outside of it. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting part of this whole term cloud native app, because it's like everything else in this space. Our terms are not super concrete. And an interesting piece about this is that an application, does an application have to map one to one with the 
running process. What is an application? That is interesting because it could could you say that a serverless app or serverless rule, whatever whatever serverless really is, I guess we can get into that in another episode. Are those cloud native applications? And they're not necessarily running anywhere. I will punt on that because I know where my boundaries are and that's definitely not in my boundaries. But the reason I bring this up is because a little while ago, it's probably a year ago, in the Kubernetes SIG apps, we actually had a, a conversation about what an application was. And the consensus from the community and from the group members was that actually an application could be made up of multiple processes. So let's say you were building this large SaaS service and because you were selling dog food online, your application could be your dog food application, but you have uh, inventory management, you have a front end, maybe you have an ad service, you have a shipping manager and things like that, sales tax calculator. Are those all applications or is it one application? A neat piece about cloud applications or cloud native applications, because what we found in Kubernetes is that the way we're thinking about applications is an application is multiple processes that can be linked together. And we can tell the whole story of how all those interactions are working. So just something else, another way to think about this. Yeah, that is interesting. I never really considered that before, but that makes a lot of sense, particularly with the rise of things like gRPC and the ability to like send like dedicated messages to or like well codified messages to different processes that gives rise to things like this multi-tenant process as an application. Right. But going back to your idea around cloud native applications being able to commandeer the resources they're needing, that's something that we do see. We see it in Kubernetes right now. And I'll give you above and beyond the example that you gave is that whenever you create a, a stateful set and the Kubernetes, the operator behind Stateful that actually goes and provisions a PVC for you. You requested a resource, and whenever you change the number of instances from one to like five, guess what? You get four more PVCs. So just to think about it. So that is actually something that is happening. It's a little transparent with people, but I can see it to the point of we're just requesting a new resource, and if we're, we're using our cloud services to watch our other things or our cloud native services to watch our applications, I could see us asking for disk on demand or even a service like a database or some other type of queuing thing on demand. And when I hear things like this, I think, wow, it sounds very complicated. But then I stop to think about it and I think it's really neat because it is complicated, but the alternative would have been way more complicated. I mean, we can talk about, so this is sort of how it's done now. I mean, it's really hard to go into details on a one-hour episode. We can't cover the how it's done. I mean, conceptually, we are sort of throwing a lot of words out there to try to conceptualize it. But we can also try to talk about it in a conceptual way, how it is done in a non-cloud native world. Yeah. I kind of want to get back to the question I posed before, like, what is a monolithic app? Like, what is a non-cloud native app? And not all non-cloud native apps are monoliths, but this is actually something that I've heard a lot. And I'll be honest, I have an idea of what a monolithic app is, but I think I don't have a very good grasp of it. So we kind of talked a bit about like what a cloud native app is, what is a non-cloud native or what came before a cloud native application. So what is a monolith? I'm personally not a big fan of monoliths. Of course, I worked with them, but once microservices started becoming common and I started developing in that mode, I am much more of a fan of breaking things down for so many different reasons. It is a controversial topic for sure, but 
to go back to your question, a monolith is basically you have an app and sort of goes to what Brian was saying. It's like, what is an app? So if you think of an app, like one thing, like Amazon is an app, right? It's an app that we use to buy things as consumers. And uh, you know, the other part is the cloud. But let's look at it like it's an app that we use to buy things as consumers. We know it's broken down into so many different services. There is the checkout service. There is the cart service. I mean, I am imagining things that I can imagine are the small services that compose that one Amazon app. If it was a monolith, those services that you know, like those things are different systems that are talking together. The whole thing would be on one code base. We will reside in the same code base, we will be deployed together, we will be shipped together. If you made a change in one place and you needed to deploy that, you have to deploy the whole thing together. You might have teams that are working on separate aspects, but they're working against the same code base. And maybe because of that, that will lend itself to teams not really specializing on different on separate aspects because everything is together. So you might make one change that impacts another place and then you have to know that far as well. And so there is a lot less specialization and separation of teams as well. Maybe to give an example of my experience, and I think it aligns with a lot of the details Carly C. just went over. Even taking five years back, my experience at least was we'd write up a ticket and we'd ask somebody to make a server space for us, maybe run Tomcat on it, right? And then we'd write all this Java code and we'd, we'd package it into these things that run on a JVM somewhere, right? And we would deploy this whole big application, you know, let's call it that dog food app, right? And it would have maybe even like the state layer, it would have the web server layer, it would maybe have all these different pieces all running together, this, this big code base, as Carlisi put it. And we'd deploy it, you know, that process took a lot of time and was very consuming, especially when we needed to change stuff. We didn't have all these like modern APIs and these kind of decoupled applications, right? But then over time, you know, we started to learn more and more about the notion of like isolating each of these pieces or layers so that we could have you know, the web server isolated in its own, let's say, container or unit, and then the state layer and the other layers even isolated, you know, the, the microservice approach more or less. And then we were able to scale independently, and, and that was really awesome. So we saw a lot of gains in that respect. Just we basically moved our complexity to other areas. We took our complexity that used to all happen in the same memory space, and we moved a lot of it into the network with these new protocols that let different services talk to one another. So it's been an interesting thing kind of seeing the monolith approach and the microservice approach and how a lot of these microservice apps are, in my opinion, a lot more like cloud native aligned, if that makes sense. And just kind of seeing how the complexity shifts around in that regard. Let me just say one more thing, because it's actually the biggest aspect of microservices that I like the most in comparison, you know, the aspect of monolith that I hate the most. And not, I don't hate it. It's just like, I appreciate the least, let's put it that way is that when you have a monolith, it is so easy because design is hard. So it's so easy to couple different parts of your app with other parts of your app and have coupled code and, and coupled functionality. And when you break things into microservices, that is impossible because you're working with separate code bases. So if you're forced to think, What's your interface? You're always thinking about what's your interface and, and what people need to consume from you. Your interface is the only way into your app, into your system. 
So I, I really like the aspect that it forces you to think ab about your API. And people will argue, well, you can't put the same amount of effort into that if you have a monolith. Absolutely. But in reality, I don't see it. And like Josh was saying, it's not a walk on the park. But I much rather deal with those issues, those complexities that microservice creates than the challenges of running a mono, big, and I'm talking about big monolith, right? Not, not something trivial. I will attempt to distill this about how I look at monoliths and, and how it fits into this conversation. So a monolith is simply an application that is, or a single process in this case, that is running both the UI, the front-end code, and the code that fetches the state from a data store, whether that be disk or database. That is what a monolith is. The reasons people use monoliths are many, but I can actually think of some very good reasons. If you have code reuse, and let's say you have a website, and you are trying to, and you have forms, and you want to be able to reuse those form libraries, or you have data access, and you want to be able to reuse that data access code, a monolith is great. The problem with monoliths is as functionality becomes larger, the complexity becomes larger and not at the same rate. And I'm not going to say that it's not linear, but it's not quite exponential. So maybe it's log into or something like that. But the problem is, is that at a certain point, you're going to have so much functionality, you're not going to be able to put it inside of one process. See Rails. Rails is actually a great example of this, where we ran into the issues where we put so much application into our Rails source directory and we try to run it and we basically run up with these huge processes and we split them up. But what we found is that we could actually split out the front end code to one process. We could split out the middleware to multiple processes in the middle, the data access layer to another process, and we could use those. We could actually take advantage of multiple CPU cores or multiple computers. The problem with this is, is that with um, splitting this out is complexity. So what if you have to share libraries? So what I'm trying to say here in a very long way is that monoliths have their place. As a matter of fact, they encourage, or at least I still encourage people to start with the monolith. Put everything in one place. Whenever it gets too big, you split it out. But in a cloud native world, because we're trying to take advantage of containers, we're trying to take advantage of cores on CPUs, we're trying to take advantage of multiple computers, to do that in the most efficient way, you want to split your application up into smaller pieces so that your front end versus your middleware versus your data access layer is your data layer itself can run on as many computers and as many cores as possible, therefore spreading the risk and spreading the usage. So everything should be faster. Awesome. That is some great insight into monolithic apps and also the benefit pros and cons of them, like something I didn't have before. Because I've only ever heard of the phrase monolithic apps and it's like said in hushed tones or with a swear word directly after it. And so it was interesting to hear the concept of it being that each way you deploy your application is complex, but there are different trade-offs, right? And so it was the idea that I'm like, I always thought, oh, why don't you want to turn your monolithic into microservices? I'm like, well, there's so much more overhead, so much more yak shaving you have to do to get there to take advantage of microservices. So that was awesome. Thank you so much for that insight. I wanted to reiterate a couple aspects of what Brian said and Josh said in regards to that. So. One huge advantage, I mean, your application needs to be substantial enough that you feel like you need to do that. You're going to get some advantage from it. But when you're at that point, 
when you, and you do that, you split it into services. Like Josh was saying, and Brian was saying, you have the ability to increase your capabilities, your process capabilities, based on the more aspect of your system that needs it. So you have something that requires very low processing. So you run that service with a certain level of capabilities and something that like your orders process or your orders microservice, you increase the processing power for that much more so than some other part. When it comes to running this in the cloud-native worlds, I think this is more an infrastructure aspect, but my understanding is that you can automate all of that. You can determine, okay, I have analyzed my requirements based on history, and what I need is X, so I'm going to say, tell the cloud-native infrastructure, this is what I need, and the automation will take care of bringing the system up to that if anything happens. So we're always going to be healing your system in an automated way. And this is something that I don't think gets talked about enough. Like we say, we talk about, oh, things are split up this way and they run this way, but in an automated mode, and this makes all of the difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, right? The, so basically, monolithic apps don't give us the benefit of automation or like automated deployment versus like microservices kind of give us and cognitive applications give us the rise. Yes, and think about this. Whenever you have five microservices delivering your application's functionality and you need to upgrade the front-end code for the HTML, whatever generates the HTML, you can actually replace that piece or replace that piece and not bring your whole application down. And even better yet, you can replace that piece one at a time or two at a time, still have a majority of your application still running and maybe your users won't even know at all. So let's say you have a monolith and you're running multiple versions of these monoliths. When you take that whole application down, you literally you take the whole application down. Not only do you lose front-end capacity, you also lose back-end capacity as well. So separating your app is actually smarter in the long run because what it gives you is the flexibility to mix and match. And you could actually scale the front-end at a different level than you did the backend. And that's actually super important in Rails land and actually in Python land and in .NET land if you're, if you're writing monoliths. You have to scale at the level of your monolith. And if you have to scale then, then you're having wasted resources. So smaller microservices, smaller cloud native apps, basically running containers actually will use less resources. I have an interesting question for us all. So obviously a lot of cloud native applications usually maybe look like these microservices we're describing. Can a monolith be a cloud-native application as well? Yes, it can. Cool. Yeah, I think so. As long as the basically monolith can be deployed in the mechanism that we described, like CICD, or it can take advantage of the cloud, I believe that a monolith could be a, a cloud-native application, sure. There are monolith because I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up because I hear Brian using microservices and cloud-native apps interchangeably. And it makes it really hard for me to follow, okay, so what is not a cloud-native application or what is not a cloud-native service or what is not a cloud-native monolith? So to start this thread with the question that Josh just asked, which became also my question, if I have a monolith app, running on a cloud provider? Is that a cloud-native app? If it's not, what piece of the puzzle needs to exist for that to be considered a cloud-native app? And then the follow-up question, I'm going to throw it out there already, is why do we care? What's the big deal if it is, if it isn't? 
Wow. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's unpack this. I've been using microservice and cloud native interchangeably, probably not to the best effect, but let me clear up something here about cloud native versus microservices. Cloud native is a big term and it goes further than an application itself. It's not only the application, it's also the environment the application can run in. It is the process that we use to get the application to production. So monoliths can be cloud-native apps. We can run them through CI/CD. They can run in containers. They can take advantage of their environment. We can scale them independently. But when we use microservices instead, this becomes easier because our surface area is smaller. So what I want to do is not use that term like this. Cloud-native applications is an umbrella term, but I will actually, I won't ever say cloud-native application. I always say a microservice. And the reason why I'll say the microservice is because it's a much more accurate description of that process that is running. Cloud-native applications is more of the umbrella. It's really interesting because a lot of the times that we're working with customers when we go out and kind of introduce them to Kubernetes, we're oftentimes being asked, how do I make my application cloud-native, right? To kind of what you're talking about, Brian, and to your question, Carly, say, I feel like a lot of times people are a little bit confused about it because sometimes they're actually asking us, how do I break this legacy app into smaller microservices, right? But sometimes they are actually asking like, you know, how do I make it more cloud native? And usually our guidance or the things that we're working with them on is exactly that, right? It's like getting that application container so we can have it portable, whether it's a monolith or a microservice, right? We're containerizing it, we're making it more portable. We're maybe helping them out with health checks that the infrastructure environment they're running in can tap into and know the health of that application, whether it needs to restart it, like Kubernetes as an example. We're going through and helping them kind of understand those principles that I, I think fall more under the umbrella of cloud native, like you're saying, Brian, if I'm following you correctly, and helping them kind of enhance their application. But it doesn't necessarily mean splitting it apart, right? It doesn't mean running it as smaller services. It just means following these more cloud native principles. It's hard to talk about this without just continuing to say cloud native, right? That's actually a good way of putting it. A cloud native application isn't a thing. It's a set of principles that you can use to guide yourself to running apps in, in cloud environments. And it's interesting, when I say cloud environments, I'm not even really particularly talking about Kubernetes or any type of uh, scheduler. I'm just talking about we're running apps on other people's computers and the cloud. This is what we should think about. And it goes to those principles where we use CI, CD. Storage maybe most likely will be ephemeral. Actually, you know what, that whole process, that whole virtual machine that we're running on, that's ephemeral too. Everything will go away. So cloud-native applications is basically a theory that allows us to be strategic about running applications on other people's computers, and storage and networking and compute may go away. So we do this in this way. This is how we get our five nines or four nines of uptime, because we can actually do this. That's actually a really great point. The cloud-native application is one that can confidently run on somebody else's computer. <laughs> That's a good stake in the ground. I stand behind that, and I like the way that you put it. I'm going to steal that and say I made it up. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> We've been talking a bit about like monoliths and cloud-native applications. I'm kind of curious, since y'all are developers, what is your experience writing cloud-native applications? I guess for greenfield projects where we're starting from scratch and we're kind of building this thing, it's a really pleasant experience because a lot of things are sort of done for us. We just need to know how to interact with the API or the contract to get the things we need. So that's kind of my blanket statement. I'm not trying to say it's easy. I'm just saying like it's become quite convenient in a lot of respects, right? 
when adopting these cloud native principles. Like the idea that I have a Docker file and I build this container and now I'm running this app that I'm writing code for all over the place. Like it's become such a more pleasant experience than at least my experience years and years ago with like dropping things into Tomcat instances running all over the place, right? But I guess what's also been interesting is it's been a bit hard to convert older applications into the cloud native space, right? Because I think a point Carlisi had started with around the idea of all the code being in one place, you know, it's a massive undertaking to understand how some of these older applications work. Again, not saying that all older applications are only monoliths, but my experience has been they generally are, they're bigger code base. It's hard to understand how they work and where to modify things without breaking other things, right? When you go and you say, all right, let's adopt some cloud native principles on this app that's been running on a mainframe for decades, right? That's a pretty hard thing to do. But again, Greenfield projects, I found it to be pretty convenient. It's actually easy, Josh. You just rewrite it. Totally, yes. <laughs> it's always an easy case. You just rewrite it and go, and then it's cloud native. Yes. That's actually the secret to cloud native apps. You write it and go, you install it, you deploy it to Kubernetes, mission accomplished, cloud native. Achieved. Anything written in Go is cloud native. We are declaring that here. You heard that here first. That's a great question. It's like, how do we get there? That's a hard question and not one that I would basically just wave a magic set of words over and say that we are there. But what I would say is that as we start thinking of moving applications to cloud native, first we need to identify applications that cannot, cannot be cloud native. And I can actually give you some. Your Windows 2003 applications, and yes, I do know some of you all are running Windows 2003 still. Those are not cloud native and they never will be. And the problem is, is that you won't be able to write, run them in a containerized environment. Microsoft says stop using 2003. You should stop using it. Other applications that are moving cloud native are applications that require a certain level of machine or server access. Uh, we've been able to abstract GPUs, but if you're working on the I.O. level, like you're actually looking at I.O., or if you're looking at hardware interrupts, or you're looking at anything like that, that application will never be cloud native. Because there's no way that we can, in a shared environment, which most likely your application will be running in, in the cloud, there's no way that, first of all, that the hypervisor that is actually running your virtual machine wants to give you that process or give you that access, or that it's not being shared with, you know, from one to 200 other processes on that server. So applications that want low-level access or have real-time you don't want to run those in the cloud. They cannot be cloud native. But that still means a lot of applications can be. So I keep thinking of if I own a tech stack and I every once in a while stop and evaluate if I am squeezing as most tech as I can out of my system, meaning am I using the best technology out there to the extent that fits my needs? If I am that kind of person, and I don't know, it's like, well, I say I'm a decision maker. And even if I was a tech person, like a hands-on tech person, I still would not have, a, a, unless I'm one of the architects. But sometimes even architects don't have a, an entire vision. I mean, they have to talk to other architects to have a greater vision of a whole system because systems can be so big. But at any rate, if I'm an architect or I own that tech stack one way or another, my question is, is my system a cloud-native system? Is my app a cloud-native app? I'm not even sure that we clarified enough for people to answer that. I mean, it's so complicated. Maybe we did. Hopefully, we helped a little bit. 
So basically, these will be, will be my questions, like, how do I know and if, if I'm there or not? Because my next step would be, well, if I'm not there, then what am I missing? Let me look into it and see if the cost benefit is worth it. But if I don't know what's missing, what do I look at, right? How do I evaluate? How do I evaluate if I'm there and if I'm not? How, what do I need to do? So we talked about this a little bit on episode one, which we talked about cloud native, like what is cloud native in general. And now we're talking about apps. And so, you know, there should be like a checklist of things that cloud native should at least have this set of things, like the 12-factor app. What do you need to have to be considered a 12-factor app? We should have a checklist 12-factor app, I think having that checklist is part of being a microservice in the cloud-native app, but I think that needs to be more. I just wish we would have that. Not that we need to come up, we would come up with that list now, but something to think about. Someone should do it. No? Yeah, it would be. Is so, it reasonable or no to want to have that checklist? Think so there is. There is. The checklist does exist. I know that Red Hat has one. I know that IBM has one. I would guess VMware has one on one of our web pages. The problem is they're all different. What I do, and this is me trying to be fair here, the new stack, basically, they talk about things that are happening in the cloud and tech. If you search for the new stack and cloud native application, there is a 10 bullet list. That's what I send to people now. The reason I send that one rather than any vendor is because a vendor is trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you their vision of cloud native where they excel and they will give you products that help you with that part, like CICD. Oh, we have a product for that. I like the new stack list. And actually, I Googled it while you were talking, Carlicia, because I wanted to bring it up. So I'll just go through the titles of this list and we'll make sure that we make this link available. So it says 10 key attributes of cloud native applications. Packages lightweight containers. Developed with best of breed languages and frameworks. You know, that doesn't mean much, but that's how nebulous this is. Designed as loosely coupled microservices. Centered around APIs for interaction and collaboration. Architected with clean separation of stateless and stateful services. Isolated from server and operating system dependencies. Deployed on self-service elastic cloud infrastructure. Managed through agile DevOps processes, automated capabilities, and the last one, defined policy-driven resource allocation. And as you see, those are all very much up for interpretation or implementations. So a cloud-native app, from my point of view, tries to target most of these items and has an opinion on most of these items. So a cloud-native app isn't just one thing. It's a mindset that I am running, like I said before, I am running my software on other people's computers. How can I best do this? I added the link to our show notes. When I look at this at this list, I don't see observability. That word is not there. Does it fall under one of those points? Because observability is another newish term that seems to be a in parcel of cloud native. Correct me here, people. I am. Actually, the eighth item, managed through agile DevOps processes, is actually, they don't say, talk about monitoring observability, but for an application, for a person who is not developing an application, so whether you have a DevOps team or you have an SRE practice, you're going to have to be able to communicate the status of the application, whether it be through metrics logs or metrics logs or whatever the other one is. I'm thinking, I'm a traces. So that is actually, I think it's 
baked in, it's just not called out. So to get the proper DevOps, you would need some observability. So, so that's how you would get that observability. So this is how obscure these things can be. I just want to point this out. It's so frustrating. So literally, we have item eight, which Brian has been a sysadmin developer, so he's super knowledgeable. He can look at that and know what it means. But I look at that and the words log, metrics, observability, none of these words are there. And yet Brian knew that that's what he means, that that's what he meant. And, and I don't disagree with him. I can see it sort of now, but why does it have to be so obscure? <laughs> I think a big thing to consider too is like, it very much lands on a spectrum, right? Like something you would ask Carly, so like, how do I qualify if my app is cloud native or what do I need to do? And you know, a lot of people in my experience are just adopting parts of this list. And that's, that's totally fine. You know, worrying about whether you fully qualify as a cloud native app, since we've talked about it as more of a set of principles, is something, I don't know if there's too, too much value in worrying about, like whether you can plop that label onto your app as much as it is, oh, I can see our organization or our applications having these problems, like lacking portability when we move them across providers or going back to observability, not being able to know what's going on inside of the application and where the network packets are headed when they switch between apps and where latency is happening. And as those problems come on, really looking at and adopting these principles where appropriate. Sometimes it just might not be worth the engineering effort to adopt them. Uh, one of the more cloud-native principles, you know, you just kind of kind of pick and choose what's most valuable to you. Yes. And actually, this is what we should be doing as experts, as thought leaders, as industry movers and shakers. Our job is to make this easier for people coming behind us. At one time, it was hard to even start an application or stop your operating system. You remember when we had to load AN1? You know, remember when we had to do that back in the day on our basic, on our Commodore 64s or our Apple or Apple IIs. Now you turn your computer on and it comes on instantly. You click on an application and it works. We need to actually bring this whole cloud movement to that point where things like if you include these libraries and you code with these APIs, you get automatic observability. And I'm saying that with air quotes, but you get the ability to have this thing monitored in some fashion. If you use this practice and you have this stack, CI/CD should be super simple for you. And we're just not quite there yet. And that's why the industry is definitely rotating around this. And that's why there's been a lot of buzz around cloud native and Kubernetes is because people are looking at this to actually solve a lot of these problems that we've had because they just haven't been solvable because everybody's stacks are too different. And I'll end with this one, though. The reason Linux was, I think, ultimately successful is because it allowed us to do things in all these Unix things that we liked, and it worked on all sorts of computers, and it got that mindset behind it, behind companies. Kubernetes could also do this. It allows us to think about our data centers as potentially one big computer or fewer computers. It allows us to make sure things are, are running. And once we have this, now we can develop new tools that will help us with our observability, with our getting software into production and upgraded and where we need it. Awesome. So on that, we're going to have to wrap up for this week. Let's go ahead and do a round of closing thoughts. I don't know if I have any closing thoughts, but it was a pleasure talking about cloud native applications with you all. Thanks. Yeah, I have one thought is that all these things that we are talking about, it sounds kind of daunting, but it's better that we can have these conversations to talk about things that don't work rather than not knowing what to talk about in general. So this is a, a journey for us, and, and I hope you come for more of our journey. First, I was going to follow up on Josh and say I'm thoughtless, 
But now I want to follow up on Brian and say, yeah, no, I have opinions. It's very much what Brian said for me, the bridging of what we can do using cloud native infrastructure and what we read about it and what we hear about it. Like for people who are not actually doing it, it's so hard to connect one with the other. I hope by being here and asking questions and answering questions and hopefully people will also be very interactive with us and ask us to talk about things they want to know that we'll try to connect the two little by little. I'm not saying it's rocket science and nobody can understand it. I'm just saying for some people who don't have like multi-background experience, they might have big gaps. And that is for sure. This was a very useful episode for me. I'm glad to know that everybody else is just as confused of what cloud native <laughs> applications actually mean. So that was awesome. It was a very informative episode for me and I had a lot of fun doing it. So thank you all for having me. Thank you for joining us on this week of the Keyblitz podcast. And I just want to wish our friend Brian a very happy birthday. Bye, y'all. Happy birthday, Brian. Aww. All right, bye, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at the Podlets and on the Podlets.io website. That is the Podlets all together, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Mm-hmm.